investors to the Absolute Return Podcast, your source for stock market analysis, global macro musings, and hedge fund investment strategies. Your hosts, Julian Klamachko and Michael Kesslering, aim to bring you the knowledge and analysis you need to become a more intelligent and wealthier investor. This episode is brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. Welcome podcast listeners. This is the Absolute Return Podcast, episode 37. I'm your host, Julian Klamachko. And I'm Mike Kessler. Today is Monday, October 28th to 2019. A little bit late recording the podcast this week. Uh, Busy this weekend with some traveling. But nonetheless, we wanted to chat about a few major market events over the past number of days. Uh, One thing we're going to chat about, hopefully for the last time, on the WeWork file is SoftBank came with a big bailout package because WeWork was pretty much teetering on the brink of bankruptcy. So we're going to chat about that financing package and the interesting structuring behind that, in addition to the sunk cost fallacy and the notion of uh, investor cognitive biases and some mistakes not to make as an investor. Some M&A news with uh, Hudson's Bay striking a friendly go-private deal as insiders bump their bid by 9%. We're going to chat about, is this enough for the shareholder activists against the initial proposed deal? Another M&A deal, uh, some pension funds acquired Altagas Canada for almost $2 billion. Why are pension funds owning infrastructure assets? In addition, we're going to chat about the investment merits of uh, spinoffs and carve-outs. Lastly, we wanted to chat about uh, merger arbitrage as a great fixed income alternative and some research that we recently put out on that. SoftBank, who we've been speaking about a lot lately, as you know, they run the giant $100 billion vision fund, and they've been a key financier of these massive private technology companies, one of them being WeWork, but it's not so much technology, more of a real estate play. But nonetheless, uh, SoftBank, it is a Japanese conglomerate and manager of the $100 billion vision fund. They agreed to fund a $9.5 billion bailout of struggling co-working startup WeWork, which is really on the ropes. They're going to run out of cash within a week, allegedly. And so they really needed this money and SoftBank stepped up to the plate, ultimately injecting $9.5 billion into the company and it was structured in a pretty complex way. Uh, Five billion of that is in new debt financing, a mix of uh, senior notes, senior secured notes, unsecured notes, and a line of credit. They're also doing a $3 billion tender offer to existing shareholders. And this is being done at uh, around $19 per share, um, which is down from $110 per share back when they valued at 47 billion dollar valuation so down over 80 percent there and they're also accelerating an existing commitment for 1.5 billion and this is of equity at 11 dollars and 60 cents per share so a dramatically different price than the tender offer and this one is about 90 percent lower than its most recent 110 dollar per share valuation Uh, but nonetheless Um, you know, a massive drop. Uh, And WeWork was really struggling here. They ran out of cash and was basically, uh, you know, near bankruptcy until SoftBank came, uh, stepped up to the plate. In addition, pretty controversial, the now former CEO, Adam Newman, he's exiting with a $1.7 billion windfall. He's participating in this tender offer for almost uh, $1 billion, uh, one third of his share stake. Uh, He's also getting a $500 million line of credit loan facility uh, to repay the margin loans he had against the stock because the thing with margin loans is 
if the stock goes down, which it obviously did dramatically here, it fell 90%. Typically, uh, margin lenders will liquidate that stock to protect the loan, but just given the illiquid nature, he was really in quite the bind here, and the banks were really concerned uh, on the security of this loan just to the dramatic fall in the valuation of WeWork shares. And this 500 million loan was really a critical part of the deal negotiations because of this margin loan and the fact that Adam Newman controlled uh, the company through super voting shares. He had a big stake in the company. He controlled the board of directors. And so if he didn't get on side, then the company basically would go into free fall. However, many employees extremely upset with this, frustrated because he's exit exiting with 1.7 billion, but the vast majority of employees uh, thousands are losing their jobs and um, the vast majority have underwater stock options and equity uh, in the company that's worth worth far less than it had been uh, historically. Uh, you also had um, uh, SoftBank executive and former Sprint CEO Marcelo Clore joining the company as, uh, I believe, a chairman or some senior role. Nonetheless, i got a quote here. He said, the size of the commitment that SoftBank has made to WeWork in the past and now is $18.5 billion. To put that thing into context, that's bigger than the GDP of my country where I'm from, which is Bolivia. This is Marcel Claret talking here. That's a country where there's 11 million people. And to put that in further context, uh, SoftBank's total uh, investment, 18.5 billion, of which uh, about 13 billion is in equity for 80% of a company now worth five to eight billion. So certainly they suffered massive losses on this. And I wanted to bring up the notion of this cognitive bias that some investors suffer. Uh, the sunk cost fallacy. Basically, when you're throwing good money uh, after bad money, just based off past decisions, when you're perhaps deep in the hole and you go on and double down. Basically, in business, sunk costs are typically not included in consideration when making future decisions. However, you see many unsophisticated or, or amateur investors making this mistake where they look at the money they put in and say, oh gosh, I've already sunk all this money in. I better, I better double down uh, in an effort to recoup the costs already put in. However, those should be completely irrelevant based on future decisions. So a real head scratcher from SoftBank here. What are your thoughts on their recent financing decision and decision to bail out WeWork? Yeah, so this ended up being a very good deal for Adam Newman, but like you had mentioned, he had the ultimate veto authority over any potential deals. So they did have to get him on board, which the optics of that are terrible. Um, but the, I guess, only other scenario is that it goes to zero. So it's kind of like a mutually assured destruction where SoftBank blinked first. Um, New, no specific to Newman, he will actually still have a minority ownership stake at, uh, it's believed to be around 10% still. Um, and then as well, specific to SoftBank as well, they were the only ones that actually invested at a $47 billion valuation. So when you talk about this destruction of capital, there are other investors, uh, Benchmark, a, uh, a very you know prominent VC firm, they will still have made money on, on as, right. a, as a whole. But you know, SoftBank was the one pushing up this valuation to $47 billion, really just by themselves. Right, I believe every investor since about uh, 2015 or 2016 is now deeply underwater as are most employee stock options. 
Absolutely. And so when you look at the valuation of the company now, um, having an equity value of 5 to $8 billion and an unknown enterprise value just because the capital structure is a little bit unclear um, with their legacy costs. But you know, when you look at their listed competitor, IWG, they have a market cap of $4.3 billion and an enterprise value of $12 billion. And to put that in perspective, IWG is cash flow positive. Right, right. And so similar business model. Absolutely. But that business being cash flow positive, where it seems they are being penalized for being cash flow positive, yeah. which or is. Alternatively, uh, even at this valuation 90% lower, we were, could arguably still be overvalued. Absolutely. And so, you know, looking at this transaction as a whole, as we've, we have talked about WeWork a number of times on this podcast, and I really just want to reiterate that this has been probably the most interesting company and deal dynamics between WeWork and SoftBank that, you know, I've seen in the last 10 years. So it's, it's a really interesting deal that was kind of a sign of the times in in the VC world and really this is an example you know there's a lot of uh, outcry against you know the Adam Newman deal um, where he's being effectively he's getting good value out of destructing a whole lot of capital mm. but really this is an example of the IPO process working the way that it should is really this was a company that came to public investors with terrible corporate governance and a ridiculous valuation and investors ultimately pushed back. Right, and it makes you wonder, where was SoftBank and the other directors this entire time? They could have easily fixed those problems of the problems with corporate governance and spiraling losses. It really took the public investors at the point of initial public offering for people to finally realize that those are major, major problems. Absolutely. And as well with SoftBank, just my last comment on SoftBank is this has been reflected in their share price. Um, I believe they're down about 30% over the last six months. Um, they are trying to raise another vision fund, another $100 billion fund, so vision fund two, um, and that has to be quite difficult right now. Right, yeah, and I wanted to touch on that point as well. You look at a professional investor like uh, SoftBank and the Vision Fund and the guy who runs it, Masayoshi Son, has had a pretty tremendous track record of success, uh, one being his um, flagship investment in uh, Alibaba, which is one of the greatest of all time. And you think, you know, why has he uh, suffered from this amateur sunk cost mistake? this cognitive bias that he really shouldn't um, you know, be suffering. But then you look, well, he's out there marketing this vision fund too, which he's hoping to raise another $100 billion. And so perhaps this WeWork deal is ultimately to like some face-saving uh, mechanism just so he doesn't have the real negative press of his biggest investment in the first vision fund going zero in a dramatic fashion and basically just imploding uh, after a hugely um, negative failed IPO and all the horrible press that it's uh, received over the, over the past couple months. So basically, he wants to uh, bail it out um, and unfortunately committing this sunk cost uh, mistake, uh, but nonetheless, he wants to fix that 
that which looks to me more of a marketing ploy to get uh, uh, reinstill confidence in his investment process. The other thing that I wanted to touch on, um, just this notion of a soft bank and their effect on the market, I don't want to understate uh, the implications in the early stage uh, startup financing world, but he was really um, pushing companies to grow as fast as possible despite massive losses and he represented a nearly limitless funding source. Now that dynamic has totally changed where he's now pushing his startup companies to become profitable as, as quickly as possible. Well that really um, displays the notion of uh, companies that are uh, capital intensive. If you lose faith of the capital markets, you're dead. And that's why import it's important to become, you know, at least cash flow break even as quickly as possible, because then you're not reliant on fickle capital markets, which as we've seen uh, in this WeWork saga can really turn um, instantly right how, how quickly did uh, we were go from uh, toast of the town 100 billion dollar valuation to a uh, near bankrupt it was in record time wanted to update listeners on another active m a file that we've been following over the past number of months what happened with hudson's bay is they actually struck a friendly deal uh, with a group led by its chairman richard baker at a price of $10.30 per share. This is a 9% slightly improved offer from their initially unsolicited $9.45 offer. Their um, upped bid is worth about $1.9 billion. Uh, now the stock traded as high as $10.72 back in August on expectations that the bid would be raised quite a bit, so I'm sure many uh, market participants might be somewhat uh, disappointed in a 9% increase. Uh, but nonetheless, you look at them over the past five years, Hudson's Bay being in the department store space, which has been incredibly challenged. The stock has lost about half of its value. Uh, it's way under the IPO price that happened, when was that, seven, eight years ago, so a, a long time ago. and a massive uh, fraction of its all-time high value. Uh, but, but the thing is, uh, Hudson's Bay, it's nearly 350 years old, and over time, uh, they built up a tremendous portfolio of real estate assets in which management has come out and said could be worth as much as $45 per share. And what we've seen happen on Hudson's Bay is that there have been a number of shareholder activists that have gotten involved and uh, were battling against this takeover price, this takeover bid by insiders who control the stock. But luckily for our investors, it is subject to a minority or a majority of minority approval and so i think that uh i don't think it's going to be enough i think ultimately um the reason why he came with such a low offer at 945 they always say you have a leg up in negotiations is if you come out with the first offer because it really gets investors anchored to it no matter how ridiculous it was uh 945 being ridiculous given that it's a small fraction of the net asset value that management claims to be 40 to 45 dollars per share but nonetheless um market currently pricing in a seven percent 17 percent annualized yield on this merger arbitrage situation uh faces a tough time and i think ultimately Ultimately, in order to get this over the finish line, that this insider group will have to increase it again um, by a further amount. What are your thoughts on it? Yeah, so when looking at the original press release uh, with the announcement of the increased bid, it, the company did mention that they had an independent 
independent advisor value the real estate portfolio at $8.75 a share. So the rationale was because this bid is higher than that, that you know investors are getting full value for the real estate portfolio. Although that isn't entirely the picture because when you mentioned that this has been a very popular stock with hedge funds over the last number, number of years because of their real estate assets, that was because these assets are currently being used for the Hudson Bay stores um, and as well as their other uh, brands. But the argument was that if these properties were redeveloped into a better use, that they would be worth those earlier quoted uh, you know, in the $40 per, per share range. Um, I've seen $28 per share quoted as well. But this valuation just being on an as-is doesn't assume any redevelopment. So it's a little bit of a, uh, a tricky situation where, yes, redevelopment is capital, capital intensive, but I don't think investors are getting full value, especially when the thesis has always been around redevelopment of these assets. Right. And that's something that listeners should be aware of, this notion of a fairness opinion from an investment bank. Now, what an investment bank is paid to do effectively, and I know this because I used to you know, be in that business, is that they're paid by the board of directors and management to uh, justify whatever they want to tell investors to get the deal done. It's not... Uh, you know, done in an official capacity, but it's more of a nod and wink type of transaction where they're brought on. They're not going to be paid millions of dollars to tell management something they don't want to hear, right? Absolutely. And in terms of the investment bank that did the formal valuation, so what I previously referred to was an independent advisor valuing the real estate portfolio. That was a real estate specific broker, um, whereas then an investment bank came in and did a formal valuation of the, the company in its entire Entirety. And in that formal valuation, they came to a range of $10 to $12.25 a share. So at this $10.30, that's really near the low part of the range. So even given from their own advisors, this is a, a pretty low offer. Um, I would also mention you did say that you know this is unlikely to appease minority investors. Um, you know, the Richard Baker Consortium, they, they own about 57% of shares. So you need a majority of the remaining 43%. And just some quick math, like, I mean, there's a couple of activists. So Landon Buildings, um, they have a, a position. I don't remember what their stake is off the top of my head. but I believe it's 5% or lower. Yes. And then Catalyst Capital owns about 16% of HBC. And they just did a tender offer at a slight discount to this tender. 30, right? Yeah, it was like ten dollars and ten cents. So, yeah, so they're not I, looking to flip it for a quick uh, twenty cent per share of profit. No, it just wouldn't be worth their time. So, just with the quick math, you have over twenty percent of uh, of shareholders, or roughly that, that are likely unimpressed by this offer. Um, so, I would I would definitely agree with your assertion that there ultimately would have to be another uh, up bid. Yeah, clearly there's a lot of value here, and, and what you're seeing in the market is just a negotiation, kind of back and forth. So ultimately, uh, they 
uh, likely will come back. This buyer uh, buyer group will come back. In our opinion, nonetheless, you got to exercise some caution because uh, uh, one comparable story to this, which uh, ended in tears, was Sears Holdings, which for a long time was thought of to have tremendously valuable assets. They never really acted on them, and the company ended up going bankrupt, and shareholders got zero. So that's something to keep in mind. Uh, obviously, Hudson's Bay core business highly challenged. Some uh, tremendous assets on a sum of the parts basis, but nonetheless, when you have uh, a lot of value destruction on the operating side and this difficulty on uh, real estate development, liquidating inventories, and then all the obligations with uh, you know, a massive workforce, then it's easier uh, said than done. So it's an interesting situation to watch and we'll see how this one develops in the future. Wanted to touch on another really interesting uh, M&A deal up in uh, Canada. So a couple of Canadian pension funds, specifically the Public Sector Pension Investment Board and the Alberta Teachers Retirement Fund Board, they're teaming up to buy infrastructure company Altagas Canada for $1.7 billion which represents more than double the IPO price, which happened just uh, one year ago. This deal was struck at $33.50 cash. That's a premium of 31.4%, so a healthy, uh, slightly above average premium for shareholders on that one. So they gotta be happy because that was also an all-time high. Now what Altagas Canada does and how they came uh, into fruition is they're actually spun out a parent company Altagas Canada uh, in an IPO just last year. Well, technically, this is more of a carve-out. Uh, a spin-off is when they just spin off the shares to current investors. In a carve-out is when they take a subsidiary or division of the company and have their own IPO to new shareholders and raise money for the parent company. Uh, but what happened was Altagas was looking to uh, raise cash to pay back debt after a $4.5 billion takeover of Washington-based WGL Holdings. So Altagas Canada ended up going public just one year ago, October 2018, at $14.50 a share. They have gas distribution and wind farm assets in BC, Alberta, Nova Scotia, and Northwest Territories. So these are really the representative infrastructure assets that pension funds are so craving these days. So we're really not shocked to see a couple pension funds looking to further build out their infrastructure portfolio by acquiring uh, Altagas Canada. But what is surprising here and I wanted to uh, bring this by for listeners to see is that Altagas Canada went public at $14.50 per share. And this IPO was really not well received at all by the market. Uh, it had to be downsized. They only raised 200, $239 million. They wanted to raise more than that. And it was actually priced at a lower level than the initial marketing range set by the underwriters when they're marketing the IPO. So investors not keen of it. However, the stock just crushed it. And this really represents how well you can do when you look for these special situations such as spin-offs or carve-outs as historically they've uh, uh, tended to produce market-beating returns. And you're certainly seeing that here. But nonetheless, you gotta think, were these pension funds asleep at the switch when Altagas was evaluating alternatives for the subsidiary? And now they're end up ending up paying more than double the price where it IPO'd just one year ago. Uh, obviously, they could have saved a fortune by uh, swooping in at, at that time and paying uh, Altagas even a premium to that 1450. And instead, they're now paying 3350 per share, which uh, perhaps not the best result, but certainly 
uh, a great result for Altagas and their shareholders. What do you think about this deal? Yeah, and it's a good point that you make that, if, that they could have saved themselves some money, um, you know, if this had been done a year ago, um, as well as like the investment banking fees and and just the subsequent pricing and whatnot. Uh, but in terms of the strategic rationale of this of this uh, transaction, um, you mentioned that Altagas, the parent company, um, owns 37% of uh, of Altagas Canada, so. They had already monetized the rest of their Porsche, their the rest of their ownership. This is just monetizing the uh, the last bit of their minority shareholding. Yeah, they would have monetized that in the IPO one year yes. ago and got cash for it. Yeah, and so this fits in with Altagas's long-term financing plans, um, as these were just seen as as non-core after their previous acquisition. Um, but looking to the actual uh, merger arb spread right now. Um, it's currently trading at about a 4.3% annualized return if you're using an April 2020 close. Although there could be some variance to this as there needs to be approval uh, from both the Alberta and BC Utilities Commissions. So uh, timing is um, you know, a little bit out of uh, investors' hands, or the company's hands, uh, certainly. Um, but as well, you know, you did mention uh, why you know why infrastructure investments are so popular for pension funds and really it just comes down to the long-term nature of the assets um, as well as they're typically these assets typically come with a uh, contracted output where a set price is already negotiated right very um, stable cash flows absolutely and so ultimately they will have stability stability of their cash flows which for any long-term organization like a pension fund or an insurance company these are very favorable as it helps them to match with their long-term liabilities yeah plus they do have annual spending obligations to their beneficiaries so that's something to keep in mind and why we're seeing this skyrocketing demand from uh, pension funds and other institutional investors like that to get really big in the uh, infrastructure and utility space. But with that being said, I saw some analysis today that looked at um, EBITDA multiples of utilities companies, and they seem to be uh, an all-time high or at least a 20-year high. So certainly investors should express some caution in this sector um yeah they are stable and somewhat uh, recession resistant i.e not cyclical however valuations seem quite high in the utility space and so that's something to keep in mind when potentially looking to allocate capital to that sector given we've been speaking so much about uh, m a mergers and acquisitions and a merger are specifically on this podcast i wanted to highlight a piece of research that we started putting out uh, our alpha rank merger monitor which keeps tracks and models out uh, every single merger transaction in north america for the purpose of analyzing it from a merger arbitrage uh, perspective and i believe merger arbitrage it's a great fixed income alternative because the way it works is a merger arbitrage will buy a uh, target company at uh, below the takeover price and look to earn uh, the difference between uh, the price they can buy it in the market and ultimately the price they receive when the deal closes and there's a number of ways of doing that on a cash deal it's pretty simple you just buy it at a discount uh, to the cash price the cash takeover value and then on a share deal then you would go ahead and short the acquirer's stock to try to earn that spread 
Uh, under our research, uh, current yield kind of uh, in the five five and a half percent range. So that's a relatively attractive yield. And typically, uh, the average merger arbitrage yield, uh, assuming these deals close, it's priced off a, a risk premium to cash. So cash yields uh, kind of 1.5 to 2.5. 0% these days and merger arbitrage premium is typically in that 3% range. So we're seeing uh, pretty good yields out of the merger arbitrage space this year. There's a lot, uh, a lot of attractive spreads out there. And the beauty is that, um, you know, it's priced to cash and they're very low duration. The average M&A deal closes within four months. And so as opposed to bonds and other fixed income securities, you're not taking that duration risk. So it's a really good strategy for, or if investors are concerned about rising interest rates, which I know hasn't happened lately, but certainly with the rock bottom yields that we're kind of seeing these days uh, in the uh, long-term treasury space, you got to figure at some point those would go up and merger arbitrage is a good strategy to help isolate you from that potential duration risk. The other thing is, um, you know, it puts together a risk reward profile that's very similar in terms of uh, expected return and uh, volatility uh, similar to say triple B bond yields or, or kind of a uh, corporate bond index, but you don't have that duration risk. The other thing that makes merger arbitrage more advantageous is the fact that uh, most of the gains is in the form of capital gains as opposed to interest that's earned off of bonds. So that's something to keep in mind is potential more tax efficiency because uh, most uh, investors are taxed on a friendlier basis on capital gains uh, as opposed to interest, which is typically taxed fully as income uh, tends to be uh, twice as high tax rate so it's important to keep that in mind as well although it's not an easy strategy certainly requires a lot of uh, specialization and a lot of in-depth uh, analysis to affect this transaction uh, or sorry affect this um, this strategy on an effective basis absolutely and so when our when our listeners are going over the uh, the merger monitor that we put out, you can see the effective yield. We do have a chart of that, and Julian had mentioned you know is in the 5.4, 5.7% range uh, for a current yield um, at the time that we published. But even looking today, um, it's showing at just over 6%. So there is some some daily volatility there in terms of the implied yield. Right. Um, and that just has to do with mergers closing, right. failing, and new mergers being announced as they're all at different spreads. Yeah, typically every day you see a new deal announced on average, I'd say, and you know, nearly every day seeing a deal close as uh, well. Absolutely, and one other thing that I wanted to point out with the, uh, with the merger monitor is one of the, a couple of the tables that we have are closed mergers and failed mergers. And if you look at the closed mergers, you can see there's really only, of the recent uh, merger closes, there's really only one that is above 200 days to close. Um, as, as opposed to looking at the failed mergers, there most of these are over 200 days to close. So what you could kind of imply from that is that the longer that a, a merge, and this is very common sense, but the longer that a merger is still open, 
the higher probability that it may not close, especially when regulators are involved, if there's any antitrust concerns. Yeah, exactly. And so those uh, long-ended and then ultimately failing deals are typically because they get hung up in the regulatory process and then the deal ultimately breaks because they can't get regulators on side. So that's a common a reason for deals to fail. And that's why it requires uh, you know, a decent amount of expertise to execute the strategy. But nonetheless, when executed properly, it it provides a really nice risk return profile, low volatility, absolute returns, and uh, you know something that investors should consider, in my opinion, adding as a small portion of a portfolio just due to those uh, various characteristics that we've discussed. And that's all about it for us this week on episode 37 of the Absolute Return Podcast. If you liked it, you can always check out more at absolutereturnpodcast.com. Feel free to leave us a review on Apple's iTunes or any other uh, podcast application that you utilize. And that's it for us. And we will chat with you next week. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in to the Absolute Return Podcast. This episode was brought to you by Accelerate Financial Technologies. Accelerate, because performance matters. Find out more at accelerateshares.com. The views expressed in this podcast are the personal views of the participants and do not reflect the views of Accelerate. No aspect of this podcast constitutes investment, legal, or tax advice. Opinions expressed in this podcast should not be viewed as a recommendation or solicitation of an offer to buy or sell any securities or investment strategies. The information and opinions in this podcast are based on current market conditions and may fluctuate and change in the future. No representation or warranty, expressed or implied, is made on behalf of Accelerate. As to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in this podcast, Accelerate does not accept any liability for any direct, indirect, or consequential loss or damage suffered by any person as a result of relying on all or any part of this podcast, and any liability is expressly disclaimed.